Grace, mercy, and peace be upon you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, church, here we are in the third, third week of Lent. This beautiful, reflective, and sometimes melancholy season that precedes Easter. You know, these 40 days of Lent, days that are designed actually to, to lead us to Jesus. These 40 days of wandering and reflecting and pursuing our Savior are preparing us for the joy of Easter. Uh, these are days preparing us for new life. But like the people of Israel who had to wander around in the desert for 40 years, in order for us to have that new life, something's going to have to die. Uh, Pastor Adam said it really well a couple of weeks ago. He said, and I quote, the life of following Jesus is ultimately about dying. Or as my former boss used to say, uh, who in their right mind signs up to follow Jesus? Like who chooses to die every day, every single season to every single thing? And yet, church, this is the crux of what it means to be a disciple. In fact, theologians argue, and quite frankly, I agree, that the seminal text for discipleship comes from Jesus himself. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, following Jesus, as Eugene Peterson suggests, it is a long obedience in the same direction. It is the slow and purposeful process of dying to ourselves so that Christ, through his Holy Spirit, can flourish both in and through you. You know, this this dying well so that Christ can flourish, it reminds me of this pivotal moment in the ministry of John the Baptist. You know, here's this dude who's like been doing it for real. He has been preaching the things of repentance so that God's people would turn, maybe that God's people would die to their evil ways and that they might live in the way of the Lord. And there is a moment when John has been doing this for quite some time, right up until the ministry of Jesus. And what could potentially be a hurdle to John's preaching is actually an opportunity for us to hear what it sounds like to die well. You see, some disciples of John, they they come to John, they're like, hey, John, Jesus is gaining and baptizing more people than we are. And John says to them, he says, he must become greater and I must become less. Uh, This is the essence of dying well, that he would become greater and that we would become less. This is the essence, friends, of following Jesus. Now, this is where we've been over the last couple weeks, right? Dying to ourselves, recognizing that we're a mess and there's nothing that we can do about it. 
uh, dying to our preconceptions about God and the way he works, uh, dying to our arrogance and dying to the supremacy of reason. And today, today we're going to find ourselves at a well near Sakar, where Jesus will unmask an often pernicious and debilitating part of our life, quite frankly, that needs to die. So let's get to it. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, you'll want a Bible. Uh, Feel free to dig out the one you brought or the one that we provide. And we're going to get to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, beginning really at verse number 1. John chapter 4, verse number 1. Now, as you get there, Jesus, a little context, Jesus was just having a conversation with Nicodemus about being born again. He's spent some time in the Judean countryside with his disciples, and he's now learned that the Pharisees know that he and his disciples are baptizing more people than John the Baptist. And while we don't really know the implication of this knowledge, we do know that when Jesus learns that the Pharisees know that he and his disciples are baptizing more than John, it's enough It's enough to motivate Jesus to head north for him and his disciples to return to the area of Galilee, which is, by the way, where his ministry actually begins. And as he begins to head north, John, in our text, tells us that it was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. Now, church, uh, we remember it's, it's not necessary to go through Samaria because it's the only road that leads from Judea to Galilee. In fact, we know that Jews at the time purposefully avoided Samaria. So there's, there's plenty of ways to get to Galilee without having to go through Samaria. But John says it was necessary. So John, John is actually making a comment after the fact, right? John is writing this after the time of Jesus. And he's thinking back on these moments and he's recounting them by the work of the Holy Spirit for you and me. And so he's making a comment after the fact, suggesting that the events that will happen there in Samaria, that the events that we're about to read, those events are necessary. For the sake of our series, the dying that's going to happen there in Samaria at this well in Sakaar is necessary if we want to experience and live out new life. So in in quick order here in John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman who's come to Jacob's well in the middle of the day to draw out some water. And Jesus begins very simply by saying to her, give me a drink. Now to be clear, Jesus is bucking every cultural norm possible. A Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. Uh, Not only is a Jewish man speaking to a woman who is not his wife, but he's speaking to a Samaritan woman. A woman from a people, a group of people considered to be, if not enemies, then at least certainly the ugly and awkward step-nephew, right? That, that's who the Samaritans are. And her, her response to him, which is, how can you possibly ask me this, suggests as much. Now, what I want to pay attention to is Jesus' response to her in verse 10. Jesus' response to her in verse 10. If you knew, 
the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now church, there are several things here that I wanna pay attention to. First, Jesus indicates that there is both a gift and a gift giver. There is a gift and there is a gift giver and we should pay attention to both of them. Now, in other words, Jesus is saying to the woman, the woman basically, for reasons we'll get to here in just a minute, the woman can't see that right in front of her is a gift. She can't see it. And while that gift is important, the power of that gift hinges on the one who gives it. So let's just take these in order, the gift and then the gift giver, right? What's the gift? Oh, I'm asking, what's the gift? Living water, yes, preach. You guys are on for next week. That's exactly right. It is, in fact, living water. But what does that mean? What is exactly living water? What, what is it? I mean, you guys know the gift, well done, but, but what is it really? Well, Jesus, Jesus will use this phrase again in John chapter seven. Here, here's what he says in John chapter seven. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's nice, Jesus, but he, he still hasn't really defined what this living water is, though he says in John chapter seven that the scriptures have talked about it. And so we're to back up into the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah promises that with, with the Lord as our shepherd, our lives will look like a well-watered garden. And there will be in that garden, Isaiah says, a spring, a spring that whose waters will never fail. There is in this garden, Isaiah is saying, in this well-watered garden that is your life, there will be a spring that never fails. That living water will be present in your life and mine. John, interestingly, John will write about this living water again in the book of Revelation as he's describing all of the saints who have gathered in heaven. Uh, so, so here's what it says in Revelation. It says, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he, their shepherd, he will lead them to springs of living water. So Jesus is referencing this living water. And he does it here in chapter 4, in chapter 7, in the book of Revelation. The prophet Isaiah refers to this living water. What is it? Well, here's what it's not. It is not heaven. When Jesus says, I'm going to give you living water, he's not saying, I'm going to give you heaven. That's not what he's saying. It is not, it is not eternal life. When Jesus uses living water, this phrase, especially in the writings of John, he is talking about new life. Living water is new life. So what Jesus is saying is those who drink the water that I give them, they will have a new life. Not in the future, but now. 
So Jesus is saying to the woman, catch this, Jesus is saying to the woman, if you understood who I was, if you understood who I was, then you would have asked and I would have given you a new life right now. A new life not just for today. In fact, this spring in you will become a spring of water that is always full, all the way to eternity. This isn't a new life just for today, but for every day. And this new life, this new life that you're walking in, this new life will satisfy the longing of your heart. And so when the woman in John chapter 4 responds to Jesus, she says, give me this living water. She's saying to him, give me new life. Give me new life now. Now Jesus' reply to her is basically, excellent, I love that you want new life. Go get your husband, call him back here, and we'll get started. And here, friends, here, here is where we need to lean in. And so let's pick this up. In verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. So what do, what do we have here in this moment? We have the potential for new life colliding with an old life. We have the potential of a new life colliding with an old life, an old life that has been filled with poor choices, unforeseen circumstances, unmet expectation. And that old life that old life filled with all of those things has been defining the present life for far too long. See, in this moment, there is the potential for new life, and it's colliding with an old life, and an old life that has been defining the present life for far too long. Now, church, we, we know exactly what the woman is experiencing. We all have a past that has been marked by poor choices, by hurtful words, by unmet expectations, by betrayal and loss. A past that if known, right, might actually go viral. Like I, I've, I've often said this, but I, I'm so incredibly thankful that social media was not around when I was in middle and high school. Like I honestly, I cannot fathom what students today have to deal with. I, I made plenty of poor choices as a middle schooler and yes, as a high schooler, but those things were not blasted into the interwebs for all of eternity. And yet, and yet for me and perhaps for lots of us, many of us live with our past running on repeat. Right, falling prey to the social media feed that is our long-term memory. You know, I've met and had conversations with many men 
who are living with huge amounts of shame because of their past use of pornography. And I've met and had many conversations with women who are defined by guilt because of their relentless pursuit and oftentimes unhealthy pursuit of a skinnier and Instagram-worthy life. I've met and had conversations with young people who are held captive to their decision to engage in sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. I've had conversations with parents who are riddled with pain because of the hurtful words they spoke or yelled at their children. I've met and had conversations with adult children who are, who are shackled by shame because they didn't do enough for an ailing or a dying parent. I've had conversations with both men and women who are ashamed of a marriage that didn't work, who are ashamed of their divorce and its effects on their children. See, friends, we, we all have a past, and we can't change it. And yet, like the woman at the well, we are held captive by that past. We allow that past to define our present. We are living as captives, and we rarely even know it. Now, I, I take that back. We, we most likely know it, but we just don't want to admit it. You know, Jesus says later in John's gospel, he says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if, Jesus says, if it dies, it produces many seeds. You know, what's extraordinary to me about the woman in this story is the woman's ability and honesty and vulnerability to own up to her past, to give it voice. Now, she doesn't tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, but she is honest. She lays bare her whole life before this random man at Jacob's well, I have no husband. But she is allowing the kernel of her life to fall to the ground, to let her reputation, her past, die in the presence of Jesus. So friends, we too have to allow our pasts to fall to the ground and die. We have to give voice to our past in the presence of Jesus. We have to offer our whole selves to Jesus. Now, I, I get it. It's, it's not easy, and it's quite painful. But I have no doubt that it was not easy, and that it was quite painful for this woman at a well to admit what she admits, to be honest about her past and that it does define her. The exchange that follows is also really fascinating. She says, oh, obviously, you're, you're a prophet. You, you have some inside knowledge into my life. Like, she can feel, right? She can feel the way that Jesus has exposed her heart, has brought her past to light. I can tell, she says, that you are a prophet. And then she switches gears almost radically and she says, you know, you Jews, 
You tell us that we have to worship in Jerusalem, but, but our ancestors tell us that we should worship on this mountain. It's like she's saying, you know, the thing is, I, I get that you have some insight to my life, but, but there are rules and there are regulations, both, both in Jerusalem and here. There are rules and regulations that say those of us who are unclean, those of us who are broken, those of us who have a past, those of us who are riddled by shame are not welcome in the presence of God. You have all these rules, and we have all these rules. I'm not allowed to be in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus says to her, listen, a time is coming when all of those rules will be out the window. And the worship that happens will be a worship of spirit and truth. It'll be a recognition of truth and, and living in the spirit. That's the kind of worship that my father wants. He wants everybody to come. A day is coming when that will be true. She says, you know, I, I know that when the Messiah, when he comes, he'll sort all of this out. And he says to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Your past doesn't keep you out of my presence. Your sin and your shame do not keep you far away. You've had a conversation with the one who will die well for you. Friends, we all have a past and we, we can't change it. And like the woman, we need to bear it out to Jesus. Jesus is saying, listen, your shame and your sin, your brokenness, your hurt, your guilt, it will never keep you from me. We have to die well to our past. But we can only do that, church, we can only do that when we know the gift giver. The gift is living water. It is a new life. But its power hinges on the one who gives it. See, in order for us to die well to our past, we have to rest in the dying well of Jesus. The one who on that cross of Calvary would bear every view of pornography, every relentless pursuit of a skinnier world, every act of sex outside the covenant of marriage, every hurtful word that's been spoken to a child, every failure to come alongside an ailing and a dying parent, all of those things Jesus absorbs on the cross for you and for me. He is saying with arms stretched wide, allow, allow your past to die with me. So that you and I, that you and I can have living water. So that we can have new life. New life today. <laughs> new life today. 
and a new life that will continue every day. You know, church, these, these days before Easter, these beautiful, reflective, sometimes melancholy days that precede Easter, these are days designed to purposely push us to Jesus, to take us to His feet, to watch as our Savior dies well. This is a season where we have to be honest about who we are. We have to die to ourselves, to preconceptions. We have to die to our past so that now in the present, Christ can flourish in and through you. You know, this story in John chapter four is such a powerful one. This is the only person, by the way, to whom Jesus will reveal himself as the Messiah. He tells nobody else, only her. And she will go from this day and she'll tell everybody in the town she comes from about living water, about new life. She is ushered into a mission to walk with everyday people every day, to live out this abundant life of Jesus. And so may God's Spirit enable us to have the same kind of courage, to be honest, and to live in that new life which Jesus so freely offers. And let us go from this place to tell everybody we know about it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may the peace of God which surpasses all human understanding May it guard and keep our hearts in Christ Jesus today and every day. Amen.